from Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 38. This is Paul speaking with the Ephesian elders. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to, come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, not as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of them every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. What would you do if you knew that today was the last day for you on this earth? Who would you want to talk to? Who would you want to spend those last moments with? Who would you want to gather around you to share your last meal? What would you say to them? What, what words would you try to convey to express the love that you have for them, the care that you have for them, the hope that you have for them? I remember a phone call on a Tuesday evening living in Wichita, doctors telling my wife that she needed to have an emergency surgery because a pregnancy had not gone the way we had hoped. And in that moment, just kind of being shocked, 
not expecting that phone call, wondering what I would say to her if it came to me having to say one last thing to my bride. What would I do without her? I have someone close to me whose father passed away in an untimely manner before he was of old age. Unfortunately, this person and their father didn't have a great relationship. This dad had made a few mistakes in his life, had hurt their family and specifically their mother in a significant way. And this child never got an opportunity before their dad died to say, I love you, to say, I forgive you. And it doesn't necessarily haunt them, but they struggle with it. It's a pain in their life. They'll never have that opportunity again. We have a text today where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is on his way to for sure imprisonment and likely his death. I tend to believe him when in verse 25 he says that I know I will never see your face again. These people whom he loves so much, who he spent as much time with probably anyone since he's began to follow Jesus, center his life on Jesus. This church in Ephesus, these elders which he has put in charge that the Holy Spirit has ordained to be overseers of the congregation there. And this is a text that's used a lot for things like ordinations here at Sunnybrook where people are commissioned for full-time vocational ministry. This is a text that's used at conferences for pastors to learn what it means to be a pastor. It's a great text for elders retreats to learn what it means to be a good eldership. And so during this sermon, we'll, we'll talk specifically to leaders in our church. We'll even bring up our elders and commission, recommission them, remember their own vows to pray over them and with them. But the reality is like most of us aren't elders at this church. Most of us are something else. Probably the majority of us are members here, people who have submitted our lives to trust the ways of God and devoted to center our lives on Jesus and have submitted to the leadership of God through his elders here at Sunnybrook and call this your church home. And even within that group, the reality is there's some who are immature in our faith and there's some who are mature in our faith. Another section of you are our welcomed and honored guests. This isn't your church home. You don't have membership here. Some of you, though, would be extended family. You do submit to Jesus as Lord. You are committed to his bride and another local body. And there's a word here for you. Some of you are on loan, college students, for a time here to call this your church home for the next one to seven years. I don't know how long it takes to graduate these days. I have no, no room to talk, just to be, just to be clear. Um, I think I'm still graduating. I don't know, actually. Um, and some of you, still welcomed and honored guests, are just observers. Curious as to what this thing called church is like. You haven't repented and turned toward God. You haven't put your faith to follow Jesus as your King, your Lord, your Savior. And I just need to tell you that you've come in at a family meeting day. I'm not necessarily going to be talking to you. That doesn't mean it might not benefit you. You may hear the words that Paul says, that Luke says, that I hope to convey clearly. And you may say, 
No thanks. Or you may hear what the church is really like rather than what you think it's like, and you may want to be part of this family and just want you to know that there's room at the table for you. And as you listen and as you observe, as you have questions, after this service, we'll be up here, elders and ministers, to talk with you about it. But be warned, this is a family meeting today. And as much as I'd like to shrink back from what I believe God is saying to us through Paul, through Luke, through his word, I can't. And so, I believe that this text has a word for us, brothers and sisters of Sunnybrook. And that word is that our lives are to be centered on Jesus. And when our lives are centered on Jesus, it will redefine our values and it will confront our fears. And now a little caveat before I start getting into what that means, that Christian preacher talk of centering your life on Jesus and confronting our fears and redefining our values. A lot of teachers like me, um, well-to-do Sunday school teachers, preachers, would like to tell you that David and Goliath is a story about you conquering your giants. A story about if you're just faithful enough or courageous enough, you can sling your sling of faith and knock down whatever giant and grab hold of the blessing that God has for you. Just a reminder is we are not David. We're probably not going to the Valley of Elah to grab some smooth stones with our leather strap to fling at a nine-foot giant's head, then slice it off because he's defied the God and his armies. We aren't David. We have things to learn from David. Yes, we have things to learn from God in that text, but we aren't David. In a similar manner, we are not Paul. We at least I haven't, I have never had a vision of the risen Christ before me where he speaks to me and gives to me a word. I've never heard the audible voice of God. I've never been imprisoned because of my faith. I've never been beaten because of my faith on the verge of death. I've never been going in one direction in ministry and had the Holy Spirit say, no, I need you to go this direction. I just haven't. Maybe you have, and praise be to God for that, but I haven't. And the reality is we aren't Paul. And so our lives may not look like Paul, but what we can learn from Paul is a life that is centered, that is completely focused on, devoted to Jesus. Everyone in here, no matter who we are, where we're at, can have a life that is centered on Jesus. And that is what we see in our text today. And when our life is centered on Jesus, our fears are confronted because our fears reveal our deepest values. The first fear that I believe we see in this text that is confronted is a fear of suffering and death. Not a surprising fear, but a fear nonetheless. We all know that the first greatest fears of most people is either public speaking or death. Suffering, suffering, is not something we seek. We actually actively try to avoid such things. We take medicine so our body doesn't hurt. We go see the doctor to try and prevent these ailments. We do things like go get shots so that we don't get the flu. 
because we like comfort. We like to have pads on our seats, air conditioning. We're willing to pay hundreds of dollars a month so that our house can be at, if you're at my house, 69 degrees. Anything above that is automatic sweat city, okay? I just can't do it. We pay because we like to be comfortable. And there's nothing inherently wrong with being comfortable. It's just a problem when we like to be comfortable so much that we actively avoid things like suffering, trials, persecution, all for the name of Jesus. It becomes a problem when we try to avoid suffering or trials in a manner which leads us to not go through them in the manner that God intends and learn and be shaped by those things. We're scared of death, mainly because we don't understand it. We don't, we can't control it. We know it's coming, but we don't know when it's coming. We're scared of death because as much as we have heard people's opinions on what comes after it, we just don't trust it. It's unknown. We're scared of death so much so that we've completely built a culture that you're not even really allowed to think much about death, let alone speak of it. If you speak too much about death, you're morbid. You've got something wrong with you. You're, you're a depressed person. You need to go get checked out. Uh, with the advances of things like hospitals and funeral homes and nursing homes, we've done everything we can to make death more palatable, to make it easier or at least to avoid it. Where in reality, for most people at most time, death was a part of everyday life. When people were injured or dying, they were doing those things in the home. And sure, maybe there was medical professionals in the place they lived, but they would make the house visits. And the people that were caring for the sick and the injured were the family members. They were the ones that watched before them as their loved ones, whether young or middle-aged or old, were dying. And when they took their last breath in the presence of their family, they were the ones that went and dug the grave. They were the ones that went and put the body in the grave. They were the ones that had those graves on their land or in the middle of the city, maybe right by the church, which is at the middle of the town. None of those things are normal today. We don't have cemeteries at many churches. Maybe a church plant that has part of their building campaign to put in and buy some land for graves. Not a lot of churches doing that. We actually put graveyard cemeteries on the outside of town. The only reason we drive by them is because our town's expanded in certain ways. We don't want to be reminded of death. We put parents, people we love in nursing homes, people that cared for us before we were able to care for ourselves, in part because it's easier. We don't want to suffer. We do all these things, like have medical advances, good things, technological advances, so that we can act as if we're immune to death. We know it's coming, but we don't want to think about it. We definitely don't want to speak about it. We're going to actively avoid it because we're scared of it. We don't know what's to come. We're, we don't like death, and we definitely don't like getting old. We'll do things to our body, put things on our body to make people think we're younger than we are because we just don't value age. We don't want to let death come in. We're scared of suffering. We're scared of death. We're also scared of rejection because we all like to be liked. 
with the people that we love, the people that we respect, the people that we see as having authority over our life. We want them to think well of us. We want them to be in good standing with us. So we don't want to say something. We don't want to do something. We don't want to have a value that differs from them because they might reject us. They might not like us. They might ostracize us. It might change our relationship. And so our fear of rejection leads us to not say the things we should probably say. Our fear of rejection leads us to not do the things we should probably do or to do things we know we shouldn't. The other thing I think this text points out is our fear of being worthless or purposeless. And of the things that I agonized over as I prepared this message, this is the one in which I believe I was most likely to shrink from saying. It's the one that I was hesitating on. It's the one that as I thought about it, as I began to put my thoughts under the text and under God's leading, as I thought about us, as I thought about me, that was the most apparent and the most difficult to say. One of the reasons, one of the fears that's pointed out is our fear of feeling worthless or purposeless. We fear this so much that one of our greatest desires is that when we die, our name might be carried on. That we might leave a legacy. That our name and our impact on the world, that we have changed the world in such a way that it's not the same now as it was before we came. Not a terrible desire, but can be really unhealthy when it manifests itself in these certain values, these certain things that we center our lives on that are not God and his mission. When we fear worthlessness or purposelessness, we begin to value things like our family more than we value God and his mission. We live in an age where kids get what they want, when they want, and can do no wrong in our eyes. We live in an age where everything is about making memories with them and family time, which is a good thing and a necessary thing becomes pitted against and prioritized over fulfilling the mission which God has given to us. We spend more time posting about our family on social media than praying for them and asking God to help us be good stewards over them. We ask in our own mind and heart, how does my kid and my family compare to theirs rather than how are we sacrificing for the cause of Christ. We spend more time worrying about or correcting our child's public mistakes rather than shepherding their hearts to discern the ways of God when we're at home and in private. Mostly because we're more concerned about our family than we are Jesus. Family, which is a good thing, a God-ordained thing, a beautiful thing that God has given you to be faithful with, but when it becomes the center of your life, it has become something of an idol that values, has greater value than that of Christ. When we fear worthlessness or purposelessness, we value our job more than we do Jesus. Whether we're someone who's starting a business or trying to climb the ladder, 
Maybe we're somebody who's trying to secure an income for their future. Again, not a terrible thing to provide for our family to be successful in that which God has equipped you to do. But we desire to accumulate wealth so that we can buy that thing or grow that account and have security rather than asking how I can use the resources God has entrusted to me as a steward of his kingdom as one who has been given authority to rule in the name of the Lord. When we fear worthlessness or purposelessness, we value our success or our abilities, students. Our grades or our scholarships or our acceptance letters or our school choice becomes an identification for us. We want to be more known for these things than known as a follower of Jesus. Whether it's our physical abilities, how well we perform on the field, or some type of special project which we've been put in charge of. We want to be known for what we do rather than whose we are. And parents, I believe that this comes from us and is allowed by us when we spend more time and money creating the model student, the star athlete, or the American patriot than we do a Christ-like, spirit-filled, young man or woman of God who love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, or strength. So many of us live our lives without living with the end in mind. We're in this survival mode and we don't know how to think or value what's valuable. We just kind of say and do whatever we see around us. We don't live with the end in mind. And when we fear worthlessness or purposelessness, we begin to value our influence more than we value the influence of the Lord on our lives. It's why we care so much about how many followers we have. It's why we care about how many likes we get when we post something. It's why we desire so much to change the world, not for the name of God, but for mine, for my legacy. We want to be valued. And in the end, all of these fears come from a value of me over a value of God and his word. It's a self-centered life. It's even under these good things, these necessary things like your work, your family, what you do and how well you do it. When those things become the center of your life, it becomes a value that it never was meant to have. And we have these fears that are not of the Lord. And the only way to change that story. The only way I have found to change those idols in my life is to center my life on Jesus. And that's what we see in Paul. And that's what we see in this text. Let's look at Acts chapter 20, verse 24. At what it looks like to have a life that's no longer centered on me, but centered on Jesus. Paul says this, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul understands. And his life is so contrary to the life of those around him because he has a life that is fully devoted to Jesus. It is completely, without a shadow of a doubt, centered on the Jesus who confronted him all those years ago. 
He knows that his life finds value only in as much as he finishes the course that was set before him and is faithful to the ministry which Jesus has given him. And we know we're not Paul. We've already talked about that, and our lives are going to look different than Paul. But here's what I know is that the lives of those of you who have centered it on Jesus, they look different, and it's pretty obvious than those who don't. The only way to change our values, the only way to change our fears is to have a life centered on Jesus that finds value not in myself, not in what I do, not in my job, not in my family, but in finishing the course in the ministry that we've received from the Lord. And the ministry that you've received has to do with your family. That's the beauty of it. Family's not to be cast aside unless they have pitted themselves against Jesus, as Jesus says. No, but your family is a place of ministry, part of your, what we call these concentric circles of responsibility where you have been given a field to minister to, to be a representative of Jesus toward. That the values of your family represent the values of God. That the words that are spoken within your family represent the words of God. That the things you do point to the Jesus who came in the flesh, died, rose again, and is coming one day. That's what a family who is centered on God, that's what it looks like. It means their time, their energy, their resources have clear evidence of a centered life on Jesus. Once you have a life centered on Jesus, your values move from comfortable to faithful. We love comfort. Comfort's not an evil thing. But when it's more important than being faithful, that is a problem. And so to have a Jesus-centered life, we need to be faithful more than comfortable. James chapter 1, 2 through 4 say this, Count it all joy. All joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So contrary to the way we think, we try to actively avoid suffering and trial and difficulty of any kind because we don't like it, it's uncomfortable, it's costly. And so here, James, the brother of Jesus, says we should count it joy because what that thing does, that suffering, that difficulty, that trial, whatever it may be, it works to shape us more into the image of Jesus than to the image of our flesh, the image of the world, the image of sin and death within us. We shouldn't run from those things, but those things make us more complete and perfect. The other thing that happens when our life is actually centered on Jesus is that we move from a fear of death to a fear of God and a love of God. Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. The one we fear is not somebody that can reject us, the one we fear is not somebody that can hurt us, not somebody or something that can even kill us because we know that there is an existence beyond the last breath that we take on this earth. And there is only one who is in control of what happens at that point, and that is the creator of the universe, the one who put on flesh and dwelt among us so that we might have peace with God and a hope of eternity with him, with each other. 
That is the hope that we have. And we don't fear this world or this life, the suffering, the death that may come. We fear God. But we don't just leave it at fear. We move to love as well. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. If you still have some of these fears that I'm talking about, these fear of suffering and death, this fear of rejection, this fear of worthlessness or purposelessness, and you try and fill those things with values of the world rather than the values of God, it's because you haven't fully understood the fear of God and you haven't understood the love of God. You have not loved God in a manner in which he loved you. And fear is still within you. And that either means you're not a believer or you're an immature believer. Because the mature believers that I know, that I sit under as somebody who's part of this church with many mature believers, they have a perfect love that casts out any fears in their life. They struggle. There's temptations to fail. But there's something transcendent beyond their circumstances because they have a life-centered on Jesus. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two because my desire is to part depart and be with Christ. For that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. A life centered on Jesus understands that as good as this life may be, it pales in comparison to the life to come. The life to come, we're fully in the presence of our God and King. And in his presence, sin has been wiped away. Death is no more. There's no more disease. There's no more disaster. There's no more brokenness. There's no more fear. There's no more hopelessness. Because we're with him. And we're with all those who have centered their lives on Jesus as well. And so Paul can say things like, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, because it's far better to be with Jesus. But if I stay here, that means I continue the course that before me. I continue the ministry which God has given me in my family, in my jobs, in my neighborhood, in my community, in the realms in which God has placed each and every one of us to be his representatives. The last thing that happens when we move to a life centered on Jesus is we move from an acceptance of people to a peace with God. Acts 20, 26, and 27 say this. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. When you have a life centered on Jesus, you may be tempted to shrink back. You may be tempted to hesitate. You may be tempted to cower away from saying what you need to say to that loved one. You may tempt, be tempted to do something you know you shouldn't do. You may be tempted to not do something you know you need to do. But a life centered on Jesus has the right values, doesn't have the same fears. It says the things it needs to say and it does the things it needs to do. Ezekiel chapter 3 
God says this to the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, but you do not warn him, you don't speak out to warn him about his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person will die for his iniquity. Yet, I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn a wicked person and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have rescued yourself. When our life centered on Jesus, we're not scared to say the things we need to say because we really want that person to know God and to be in a right relationship with God so that we can spend eternity together with God. But also, this text seems to say, along with some other text in the New Testament, that if we don't say it all, especially the teachers and the preachers in the church, there's a level of responsibility that God will incur on you. That we have some level of responsibility, that there will be some level of judgment if we refrain and cower away and shrink back from saying the things we know we should say in order to give somebody the hope that might save their soul. Far be it from us to be that kind of people. May our lives be centered on Jesus. The last thing that I believe this text does is protects our faith and it protects our church. And part of the ways God has protected our faith, that he has given us protection over the church is through overseers, spiritually mature people who have been given the command by the Holy Spirit to guard us, to guard our faith, to guard our doctrine, to protect us against sin, to protect us against disunity. That's part of the way that God protects us. And so what I want to do at this time is read through the last part of this text. As a reminder for all of us, the way in which God works in relation to his church. Why he does things like sets apart elders and overseers within the local body. And then we'll ask the elders who are here in this service to come forward so that we can be reminded together of what they've been commissioned to. Acts chapter 20 Verse 28, from Paul to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Not some group of people, not some ruling elder board, but the Holy Spirit himself has set apart elders to oversee the church. This church which he obtained with his own blood, the church of God, Again, this isn't some just human institution that we've created to perpetuate our own image so that you can just continue to hear our voice. This is the church of God, which he has paid for with his own blood, sending himself, putting on flesh, Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus, we believe to be God, has obtained the church. He began the church. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And therefore, be alert. Be on guard. Be awake. 
Remember that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, for you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that he would not see their face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The first verse of the next chapter says they literally had to be torn apart because he loved them. And he knew what was coming for them. It's like a parent sending their child off to that first day of college. You know what's coming, but you just need a last word of wisdom. It's like the father giving his bride away as she, before she walks down the aisle. I know the difficulties that are coming, and I just need you to know this. Paul, to those he loves, is reminding the elders of who he was as a template for who they should be and reminding them of the call and the responsibility that they have in light of what is to come. And that's how the church works. This church, which has been bought with the blood of Jesus, has elders and ministers who have been set apart by the Holy Spirit in order to watch over our doctrine, watch over our faith, to remind us the whole plan of God. And it's our commitment as teachers and preachers, and you'll hear in a moment as elders, to never shrink back from saying difficult things to you things which I'd rather not have to say, if I'm honest. We will never be satisfied with false teaching or a life that doesn't point to Jesus. And that's our commitment to this body and to the Lord. At this time, I'd like to invite the elders that are here to come forward and to be reminded, based on God's word, that which you have said yes to. Again, this is a family conversation, and we're so glad you're here to hear it. No, this is what we believe about the leadership of this church. Know that if there's any way in which what is being said here doesn't line up with the reality that you see, our desire is to correct that. And I don't speak this as somebody with some kind of authority. I speak this as somebody who's willing to sit under the Spirit of God and the Word of God as a member of the people of God here at Sunnybrook as somebody who sits under their authority, as somebody who they've known since the very first day I was here and rose up out of those waters of baptism. So I don't speak with authority to you, but I speak the word of the Lord to remind you of what you've been commissioned toward and what you've said yes to. My brothers, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Be on guard against sin and disunity among yourselves and among all the members of this church of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. Use your God-given authority to hold the teachers and preachers of this church accountable to declare the whole plan of God so that we might be innocent of the blood of all. Do not allow anyone to use this place for deceitful financial gain. 
Rather, lead us and guide us in how to sacrificially minister to those in need within our body and in the world around us. Finally, never cease in giving the health and unity of this church over to God through prayer and the word of his grace. I'm going to invite Brother Gail Garst, one of our former elders, to pray over. And this will be our time of corporate prayer together. So as Gail prays, I invite you to echo his prayer, to continue and to utter words to the Lord for these men and for this flock. Would you join with me in praying for our elders? Father, we want to say thank you, first of all, for Jesus, for your plan of redemption for us. Father, for this church fellowship that encourages us and challenges us in our faith. I thank you for these men that are standing before us this morning. Thank you for their willingness to accept the responsibility of leadership of this fellowship. Father, I thank you for our ministerial staff, the men and the women that have answered your call. And I pray for each of them, your divine wisdom and discernment of your will force and your redemptive plan for this community across the country and around the world where this fellowship has influence. Father, we recognize that the church is also known as a building and land and, and resources and a ministerial staff and ministries that have to be organized. And I pray you'd give your divine wisdom, these men, to make those decisions always with the backdrop of what would be most effective in advancing your redemptive purposes for this fellowship. But Father, more important than that is the church, as Drew reminded us last Sunday, the body of Christ that each one of us is a part of. I pray that you'd give them insight and wisdom in knowing how to apply the truth of your word to us. Father, just be with them in a special way. We have a culture that is corrupt, a media that bombards us with values that are not, not from you each day. I pray you give them a commit, these men, a commitment to your word and the courage to confront us in our sin. Father, that each one of us here might become more and more like Jesus each day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.